Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So Ollie, I'm taking over the media podcast. Uh, I guess the thing I'm concerned about is, is there any trouble or any beef with any previous guests? <laughs> Are there any tips you can give me about people um, We've got I, a strict culture of a murder, so if there was any trouble, it would be horse's head in the bed. Like, you know, they wouldn't still be regulars. You don't need to worry about that. Everyone that's still in the panel is sound. Okay, let's name some people and you give me your instant reaction or how I should deal with them. Exciting. Jane Garvey. If she doesn't know the answer to a question, she throws it back to you as a question, which is obviously a thing that she's honed on Woman's Hour over many years, <laughs> which is great for live radio, but really difficult as the host. So watch out for her. Watch out for Garvey. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about Alex Hudson? Alex Hudson is the opposite to Jane Garvey in that he has completely adopted to the podcast lifestyle, I think, where he will bullshit happily and then think, should that be in the final edit or not? And the remarkable thing is I'd go as far to say probably 80% of the stuff he says, which he does, he surprises himself by what he knows, I think, <laughs> is stuff that he is happy to be broadcast. So that's, it's kind of fun. It's like, it's sort of like improvised theatre working with him. Excellent. And makes a note, uh, improvised journalism. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maggie Brown. I feel like with Maggie, she's allowed to do a seven-minute answer to a simple question like, how are you? The good thing you'll have now, of course, is that Maggie Brown's book is finally out, (laughs) the sequel to The History of Channel 4. I've read it. It's very good, by the way, I should say, in my final edition. Well done, Maggie. Um, Actually, that's the reason I'm leaving. I feel like uh, I was only here to promote Maggie Brown's book. (laughs) And now it's finally out. Um, I have no more work to do. So, But the good news is you won't have to promote that. You have to find another thing to ask her what she's up to. So it's usually a lunch with someone from TV in the 90s, which is fun to hear about. And what about Paul Robinson? Well, Paul's difficult because all of the introductory banter used to be about where he's flown back to. But obviously for the last two years, we've been left <laughs> plugging his bizarre local radio project. So I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know where we go with that now. I presume he's back on planes again. So that's a relief, for, I imagine, for all of the executive clubs around the world. So, Ollie, why has this spot opened up? Where, where are you off to? What's happening? <laughs> the most competitive show in, in the whole of the biz. <laughs> why would I possibly turn my back on this? I love this show. It's the only show I can say with certainty that I've listened to every episode of. And I know that sounds weird because I've been presenting it for six years. But I mean, prior to that, I listened to every episode of Media Talk from The Guardian when it was that. Shout out Matt Wells and Emily Bell. But I think there comes a point where there's only so many times you can, there's so many iterations of, oh, the BBC is sacking more people and asking them to move to Salford. What do you think about it? That you can ask the same group of people. (laughs) I've always liked to inject some of my own opinion into the show because it's a podcast and Mm. you can do that. And, um, you know, so I I feel like the listeners to this know what I think already about a lot of stuff. Um, And also, like, 
it would be my preference to present a regular show about the media industry for which I was paid. <laughs> nudge, nudge, Radio 4, make a decision. <laughs> it's difficult, though, because with this, there's always the influence. We've got a small audience of, of people who work in the media industry. I, it's a way of telling a whole load of different people at different rungs of the ladder in different media organisations that you exist. But I feel after six years, that message has probably got through. Uh, and if there was any overarching advice uh, about guests generally, what would that be? I think putting people at their ease for the first five or six minutes is really, really important. Even the grizzled veterans who have done the show lots of times before. You'll see it in Faraz's eyes, for example. There's an experienced executive. He, you can see him thinking, how am I best? He's like a pitch meeting. Someone from CBBC might be listening. <laughs> and it's important that he mentions where's your head at or what's on your head or whatever it's called in exactly the right way. So that there's that moment of just making people feel relaxed. Because it's all about the gossip, isn't it? You want people to feel relaxed enough that they tell you what they really think. I feel like that's our USP. Truth, isn't it? You want you want to hear what, truth, what, what, truth in journalism. What, there you are. There's, you see the baton being say. handed on from the gossip monger to the journalist. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess more importantly, um, are you willing to come on as a guest? Ooh, um, yes, but I feel like it would be weird at first, don't you? Well, you can plug a project. Remember, yeah, that's exactly. The best opportunity. <laughs> yeah, the retrospectors, the retrospectors. <laughs> um, yes, of, of course, I'd love to come on as a guest, but I feel like I should give it a dignified six months. Um, so the final thing left, I guess, is um, for me to present you ceremonially the passing on of the presenter baton, the microphone. Okay, let's swap over. Here we go. That is much better, isn't it? Sound deep and resonant, and now listen to me. Sound like a mouse in an elevator. That's great. Welcome to the Media Podcast. Yes, welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Matt Deegan. On the show today, Netflix buys up the rights to the Roald Dahl back catalogue with Amazon, Disney and Apple all spending big this year. How does this deal match up in the streaming wars? Also on the programme, with Andrew Neil spilling all in the tabloids, what now for GB News? And what does this mean for the return of News UK's TV plants? All this plus the sonic screwdriver changes hands as Doctor Who leaves BBC Studios. And in the media quiz, we'll find out who's axed, back or vaxxed. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. And joining me today is the globetrotting media consultant, Paul Robinson. Paul, as Ollie suggests, have you managed to take flight yet this year? Well, sadly not. Sadly not. So I'm, I'm disappointing the very beginning of this very badly. Now, the first trip is going to be to Radio Days in Portugal, which you're going to be there as well, I think, Matt. Yes. Uh, but no, no flights. And I don't know about this dodgy radio project. So I'm going to have to have, uh, <laughs> have a session with him and sort him out. I don't know what he's on about. Uh, also, scanning through your Twitter, I noticed some surprise at some recent changes at Disney. Um, tell me and all of us about Gary Marsh. Gary Marsh is uh, someone who's been there for 30 years and he was behind um, Hannah Montana and High School Musical and some of those big franchises. He's come up through the ranks. He was um, an executive producer and he's you know become more and more senior over the years. He's a really good guy. He's a really good creative. And I was quite surprised to see him go. He's sort of been at Disney forever. Um, but um, I guess time for a change. But no, Gary Marsh's got a solid record of achievement and he's a thoroughly nice guy. There's obviously been quite a few changes at Disney, particularly at the top with a, a, a CEO shift. Is this sort of just the, the waves of that as he gets his own team together? 
Well, Bob Chapek's been there just under a year or so now. I mean, Bob Iger was renewed several times, the previous CEO, and, and Bob wanted to go, and then he, he stayed to oversee the Marvel acquisition. Bob Chapek comes from a different place. Um, you can see already the influence of Bob Chapek. He's starting to be even more uh, keen to monetize Disney assets. Disney's always been very good at leveraging all the money in every window uh, with its content, but Bob Chapek's doing even more of that. Some of it controversial. I mean, the idea of paying for fast pass in the in the parks has not gone down very well um so it'll be interesting to see it's early days he's clearly shaping his team peter rice is new as well uh, and also of course the big transition for disney is closing all its channels and moving to completely a, a consumer you know business consumer based um business uh, so i think you know you're seeing changes in the structure of the industry and that's being reflected in the management changes also back on the show is the senior sub-editor at hello magazine and creator of positivity uh, the know your menopause campaign elizabeth carr ellis now, um, marriages, I guess, have always been pretty big business for Hello. Uh, I suppose with lockdown pretty much eased, all those celebrities are, are hopping back into church. That's got to be good news. It has been. We've had some fantastic weddings recently. The biggest one, I suppose, has to be James Middleton getting married in France. And that was absolutely beautiful. It was a very small wedding, very intimate. Um, and we got some fantastic exclusive pictures for that. And yeah, it was great to see. It's just been lovely seeing people getting out and about. And we've been having discussions about how we can do this more in the magazine, bring, you know, how much are people wanting to see social life coming back on? So yeah, it's been it's been brilliant seeing the world open up again. I'm getting married next year uh, in July. What do I need to do to grab myself a Hello exclusive? I imagine I've got to get some good guests. You have to get some really good guests, get a beautiful dress map, and you know, you never know. Okay, I'll uh, think. The dress is important. And if you, if you can throw in a few sparkles, a little bit of diamonds in there, We'd love it. I'm definitely not against sparkles. Uh, right. Uh, Sparkling Netflix have acquired the rights to the Roll Doll suite of books, uh, which the streaming giant plans to uh, create 19 separate projects across TV shows, movies and stage from. Um, Lizzie, what caught your attention from this announcement? Oh, for me, it has to be the prospect of Taika Waititi uh, creating a TV series. I'm just hoping we're going to get Chris Hemsworth playing, you know, Willy Wonka that would just be amazing I would love it but yeah having having the Marvel guy I mean Thor is my favorite superhero apart from Spider-Man sorry Spider-Man <laughs> but Thor is one of my favorite superhero films so the idea that this is going to be given over to the Roald Dahl series I just think is fantastic do you think we're kind of seeing a Roald Dahl cinematic universe will will um, James and his giant peach drop into uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory's uh, local town I'd love to see the witches take on Willy Wonka for example but um, I really do hope not I'm very much against all of these universes go on because they do get quite exhausting and you get to you lose the plot unless you can follow all through the universe I think that's a bit too much fanboy for what are a whole load of children's books that have a very moralistic outlook to them although there are some problems with Roald Dahl which mm. makes me a bit surprised about this 
because we have had all the anti-Semitism accusations and his family have apologized for many things that he said. So I'll take back accusations because what he said was pretty anti-Semitic. So that is the one thing that has made me query this. Is this going to be such a huge success for them where there are so many dodgy parts to the books as well? And I say that as somebody who pretty much loves them. Do you think there's something in... Uh, kind of extracting it from the family and basically putting it in a, a, a corporate environment and they're trying to say actually this is this is about the work um, rather than the person and I guess whether they'll um, uh, achieve that. It does take it away I mean when you look at you know playwrights in the past we don't know what sort of attitudes Shakespeare has but you know I bet they weren't the most modern as we would see it now so taking it out of that aspect does have that way of removing it a little bit. But at the same time, the story is still there. And there are elements of the story, as I said, that are very problematic. You have huge fat phobia in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, for example. Um, and while it's supposed to be the good guy always wins, sometimes you think, well, maybe the others are just a little bit misled and they weren't quite so nasty. If they'd had nicer parents, perhaps they would have been nicer children. So there's a whole load of different aspects to it. It's going to be fun to watch. Um, Paul, how does this compare with Netflix's rivals and their plans? I'm sort of aware of, you know, what Amazon Prime are doing versus Disney and all the others. Well, I think what's interesting about this is that Netflix have got a number of challenges. Um, they've been the first mover, you know, ever since they took the the risk with House of Cards, um, which paid off them handsomely. They've been investing in content and they have to do that to protect their balance sheet because their balance sheet's got this horrible multi-billion dollar hole in it. And that valuation of the company is really shored up by their continual investment in high quality content. And they need to keep on doing that because the thing about streaming services is that you consume a huge amount. You've got to keep on adding new content all the time and exclusive content. And we've now seen Disney Plus come into the market in a very short period of time, build up to 100 million uh, subscribers. D uh, Netflix is at roughly twice that. But when you add in Star in India, Disney's already about the same level as Netflix. So we are going to see Disney probably overtake Netflix in the next year, 18 months in terms of total number of subscribers. And then you've got Amazon with massive, massive deep pockets. So there is a war there uh, on content. If you're a content owner or a content creator or a writer, it is the best news ever because good content will attract very uh, big prices. Why roll dull? I, I hear the points Lizzie made about uh, you know some of the downside, but I think ultimately some great characters in there, great stories. Obviously, the work's got to be done well. I mean, if you think about um, The Hobbit, tiny little book made into three massive movies brilliantly by Peter Jackson. If they can do it well, then they can create uh, features, they can create TV series. And interesting, in fact, they were talking about stage shows and live experiences. So you can see Netflix here thinking beyond the original platform. But the other reason why this is important is that the thing that everybody hates if you're a streamer is churn losing customers and the best anti-churn content you can put on a streaming platform is family and kids content because no one is going to cancel a platform if your kids say i want to watch Ch james and the giant peach or charlie and the chocolate factory it's a very brave parent who does that so in terms of reducing churn uh, that's a really really smart way of helping to stop it but also, if you're a streamer, you need a franchise, don't you? You need access to, to content that people uh, recognize, things you can build out. So 
Disney you know, have done a great job with the Star Wars universe. Uh, Amazon Prime obviously spending a obscene amount of money on um, Tolkien and, and, and even buying um, MGM. Yeah, I mean, $8.5 billion for MGM. Um, and uh, as you say, The Lord of the Rings is also a billion plus. I mean, the other problem that Netflix have got, of course, is they don't get the P1 movies because they're not a vertically integrated studio uh, like the others, uh, Amazon being the exception, Disney, HBO Max, Viacom, CBS, The Peacock, NBCU. They've all got these massive Hollywood studios behind them. They have got no movies because all those P1 movies are going to their own studios. So Netflix has to find a way of getting features. So it has to buy franchises, has to buy things, which, as you say, have got multiple episodes. Uh, to build out those movies and their original movies have really really improved but they're still not getting the the movies we see in the cinema and that is a a problem for Netflix compared to their competitors Uh, Lizzie are you an Apple TV subscriber at all? I bought a new Apple, so I have a year free. Uh, So does that make me a proper subscriber? Well, that's an interesting thought. So um, in America, some uh, subscription numbers came out this week. Uh, Normally, Apple don't really talk about this, uh, but they pay less um, to some of their suppliers if their um, subscriber numbers are below a certain amount. Uh, and, And any streamer gets this kind of discount if you haven't got as many subscribers. So how many subscribers do you think Apple have or revealed they have um, in America and Canada uh, at the moment. I looked this up and Apple actually say they have fewer than 20 million subscribers. Yes, that's right. Which I think is a, a pile of hokum, <laughs> Apple. I refuse to believe it. Um, I think this is very clever jiggy repokery on the books. There's lots of talks of strike in the ind- entertainment industry over in America at the moment, which has just been filling up my Twitter feed constantly for the last few days. I think the mm, I don't agree with that. I don't agree. I, I, I'm sorry. I think you're wrong there. Um, I think the point here is it's 20 million subscribers in the US and Canada, so North America, and paying subscribers. So I can quite believe it's true. Um, there are 100 million TV households in America. So if they've got 20% of the base paying in America already, then they've done pretty well. So I think that's entirely a credible number. Their global number is probably more like 50, 60 million. Um, I think this is merely um, a financial expedient to avoid paying, uh, but it's probably a true number. I agree with you that it's a way to keep the, the payments down, definitely. And when you give the figures like that, that's a very substantial number. For me, you know, I've watched TV programmes which have had more than that many people viewing in. Yeah. So I just think, well, it's not that many really, is it? You make a really good point, And that is actually the, the approach here could damage their brand. That's what you're saying, isn't it? You know, you, you start thinking Apple aren't the good guys anymore because they're trying not to pay money they should be paying. Um, whether they, the number's true or not, it's actually not perceived very well for Apple. I think that's a really good point. I agree with that. And another international property uh, trying to find its groove again is Doctor Who. Uh, and there's been quite the development this week. Uh, Paul, uh, what's happened to the Doctor? Well, I mean, you know, I've been watching Doctor Who, I'm afraid, since William Hartnell in 1963. Who's your doctor? So I've, who's my favourite doctor? Patrick Troughton, who is the second doctor. Who's your doctor, Lizzie? I'm a, I'm a John Pertwee, Tom Baker, more generation. I can... I don't think I can remember Patrick Troughton. I think I remember him as a false memory from watching catch-ups. But yeah, I'm a John Pertwee, although with a David Tennant thrown in as well, and Christopher (laughs) Eccleston. So I'm put in both camps. So, Paul, there might be uh, a new Doctor, though, to to deal with um, in front of the camera, but also behind it too. 
Well, I was very excited by this as a Doctor Who fan, and I think many Doctor Who fans were, because Christopher Eccleston uh, was uh, really you know, made into a fantastic Doctor, I think, by Russell T. Davis returning to the helm. So, you know, when, when Christopher Eccleston you know, David his Doctor Who, I was sceptical. Is this going to work? You know, but he did an amazing job, Russell T. Davis. So I think the fact he's returning to helm the show is really, really great news. Not that Jodie Whittaker hasn't done a good job. She has, but I think the chance to maybe get some new ideas some new energy it has got a bit silly i think in places i'd like to see some more grit and and the fact that we've got some um, bad wolf as a production company now so moving outside bbc studios to bad wolf i think is good news because you know his dark materials discovery which is has a bit of uh, a bit of jeopardy a bit of darkness in it i'd like to see a little bit more more grit you know with, with daniel craig leaving james bond but he brought so much more of that sort of menace i'd like to see a bit more menace and a bit less of the silliness in doctor who so i am extremely optimistic uh, and I will certainly be following this with great interest. And I think this is going to be a sort of third, if you like, third reincarnation of Doctor Who. And I, I think this is going to be fantastic news. Uh, so let's touch on that Bad Wolf point. Um, so historically, it's been, a, I think, a co-production between BBC Studios and BBC America. Obviously, American market important for them. Um, you know, Russell T Davis is in, he's, he's involved in Bad Wolf. Is he a, is he a partner in Bad Wolf? What, why why have, have they got their claws into into the new Doctor Who? I don't know whether there's any relationship between Russell T Davis and Bad Wolf. I mean, I know Jane Tranter, who is a, a, a fantastic executive and a fantastic producer. Um, Bad Wolf, of course, was um, a, a character that appeared in Doctor Who, as you probably know. Mm. It was a long running little uh, story through uh, through the show. Um, I don't know if there's any relationship. I mean, Bad Wolf are a great production company uh, Russell T Davis is a great showrunner so I see this as a injection of new blood into a franchise that probably is not on its knees but you know I think you know reinventing and reinvigorating is probably ready uh, and uh, I think this is a very good combination yeah I think obviously you saying that the, the Bad Wolf team who are now the Bad Wolf team they worked on the, the original reboot so he probably wants a, some of that magic as well uh, Lizzie what what can they do to uh, to reboot the Doctor I loved the first two, three series of Doctor Who when it came back in 2005. I was living in Spain at the while, so I watched it very naughtily over the internet. <laughs> and it was amazing. And it did have that menace that Paul has talked about. But then it just became, as I said, with the, the universe of Roald Dahl, it just became a fanboy's dream. And to me, that is what worries me about Russell T. Davies coming back because it became a fanboy's dream where the whole canon came involved. And unless you knew who the Doctor had been married to in the year 5999, then you weren't really into that week's story. I would have loved to have seen somebody fresh and new on it. Let's get a woman in. Let's get someone like Sally Rain right in. Let's get a fresh face, somebody who is going to take it completely new, who loves the series as well, but doesn't like all of the canon and all of the backstory and is just going to give us some plain old Daleks that are going to make you hide behind the settee again. Okay, well, we'll regenerate with more media news after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Next up, and the influencers are revolting. Well, not my personal view, but the aims of a new activist campaign called Fuck You, Pay Me. Lizzie, what are they after? They're after more money. They're after getting paid a good wage for what they do, they say, and for being more open and more honest. Um, this is started by a former model called Lindsay Lee Lugren, who says the influencers are not being paid according to how much work and influence, for want of a better word, they actually put into the brands. They're saying the brands are asking for more and more. And because influencing is becoming so popular, they're trying to pay less and less or getting somebody who's willing to do it for free because they just want to get their step on the influencer's ladder to begin with. So she's opened up this campaign. She started the Fuck You Pay Me website um, where she's asking people if they can do a review of who they've been working with, with the brand, compare deals, compare how much they've done, how much work they had to do in for it. So she's wanting the whole world of influencing to be more open and honest. It's basically, she's kind of created a website that's sort of like trustatrader.com, but instead of a plumber, you're kind of reviewing Adidas. Basically, yes, she's, and your experience of working with Adidas and how much they want you to do for this job. Um, I think it's a bit, influencing is becoming so huge and I mean it is becoming a career now which is something somebody in my generation would have just laughed about 10 years ago but it's so massive that I see her point there does need to be for want of a better word a union around them somebody who is going to look after them because these are quite often very young people who have no idea about negotiations or about what is expected of them in the world of work. So they are very young, they are very vulnerable to being abused and sadly there is always somebody who is going to be there who will do it for free and as somebody who does freelance work and has done a lot of freelance work in the past, 
this is the worst thing that can ever happen to an industry is when you get people who are prepared to do it for free because they just undermine any professionalism and the fact that other people can make it for a living. By doing it for free, you're just destroying the whole industry for the rest of them. Because a big part of her push is it's more around sort of mid-tier influencers or micro-influencers rather than sort of the D'Amelio sisters or Amanda Cerny, you know, people with you know hundreds of millions of followers. It's kind of people who are... Uh, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000, that kind of level, isn't it? Yeah, and I think me on my 1,200 on Instagram is never going to have to worry about this, sadly. But yeah, it's these people who are just moderate and they're trying to make a difference and they're trying to make a living out of it. But they're already getting hit by, you know, things like gender issues. Men are getting paid more for a post than a woman will get paid for a post, for example. Um. And there are small people, and so they're very dependent upon the brands because if the brands don't give them the things to advertise, then what does their life come down to? You know, especially over the last year, there hasn't been many occasions to go out and sell yourself and show yourself as an influencer, as somebody who you want young people to follow and see as a role model. So yeah, the young, the mid-market is a difficult one to be in. They don't have the power and the clout of the big names to be able to get what perhaps they are deserved. I mean, Paul, there's sort of a, a parallel with the regular media sector, isn't there? You know, how freelancers are treated, uh, the exchange of exposure for um, for, for work and, and, and those sorts of things. Is it is it just a, a slightly modern version of a, a long-standing problem? I was thinking exactly the same thing, actually, when Liz was talking, and I do agree with what Liz just said. I would say I think it's probably a lot harder to get a plumber than to get an influencer. <laughs> but um, that said, um, you know, clearly you want to make sure that this is done in a professional way, because if there's a service being given, there should be a reward for that service. Where I sort of differ from them is where they start bleating about um, big stars getting paid more. The reality is any advertising, any marketing, uh, if you put a star on, you're probably going to get a bigger result. I, whilst I dislike it immensely, all these TV stars going on to radio stations, um, actually they go on because they bring audiences with them. They bring, you know, uh, they bring a following with them. So the same is true in, in influencing. So you know, if you are a name and you have got a reputation or a brand or you stand for something, then of course you're going to get paid more. I think at the bottom end of the market, um, there's also the issue here of making for, as Liz was saying, people aren't exploited. Whether it goes as far as a union or not, I'm not sure. What I think you want is a professional process where people are paid what they're worth. Um, and ideally, rather than setting up a website, I'd like to see people actually talking to uh, the customer suppliers and, and working out how to make this work as opposed to uh, a website like this, which frankly, I, I doesn't give me much truck. I, I wouldn't be interested if I was going to hire an influencer in being involved in this website. I'd go to someone who I think was professional. I guess it's also for, for many influencers, uh, fame is somewhat thrust upon them. You know, they have a viral moment or uh, they they create a meme or they're just at the center of it for a while and there's no information or training or understanding. And then suddenly people are getting in touch with them about what to do. And it's it's for them, isn't it? How, how do they find out what they should be doing when their family have no idea and never been involved in, in the media before? 
someone who has been involved in the media before is Andrew Neil. Um, and well, we all know there's been quite a few ups and downs of GB News during our uh, summer break, uh, but it's probably largely ended up where I imagine a lot of the listeners uh, thought it would. Uh, that's Andrew Neil leaving the station and many of his team uh, heading out the door too. Um, Lizzie, what's uh, Andrew finally said this week? Andrew's at the working at GB News over the last, how long has it been up? It's not even been up that long, but basically left him feeling ill and stressed. And as somebody who once worked for an Andrew Neil publication, I can understand exactly what he means. I think it says a lot that someone like Andrew Neil is coming out and saying the culture is so toxic that it made him stressed and ill because you know he comes from the old school of newspapers which were very male orientated and very macho you had to be one of the boys to keep up and you just put your feelings behind you and you know did the job so it shows it must have been a bloody tough place to be working in and i think also he expected it to be a success straight away because you know Andrew Neil is one of the best political journalists around and he has that name and that reputation. And I think he felt that would follow him, whereas people aren't prepared to watch that unless they have a professional team around backing them. Do you think he underestimated how important the team was and that he's just actually been in places where there's been a lot of support for him that maybe he wasn't as aware of? I definitely agree with that. Nikki Campbell tweeted about the front and backstage talent both being equal and as a person who comes from production journalism I said exactly the same thing about sub-editors you know you get rid of the back team and then the front team is no longer so good mistakes come through in the newspapers there are factual errors there are just grammatical errors tone errors because the back team is just as important as the talent who are on the front so, yeah, I think Andrew Neil very much underestimated how important it was to have such a good team behind him. Although to give him his dues, he did say that it, he had said earlier on that they weren't ready to go live and they should have held off going live until they were more prepared. Paul, what other lessons do you think we can draw from the launch of GB News? Well, I think I agree with what's just been said by Lizzie. I think what's extraordinary about this is Andrew Neil, I think, was the chair. He wasn't sort of management. He was the chair was he said on several occasions the management didn't listen to him, which I think is very interesting because um, he's not an operator of a TV channel, but he is, as Lizzie says, one of the best political journalists we have. And, and the reason is, and I've spent time talking to him, he does his research. He really does. He gets handed the stuff the BBC give him and then he does additional digging. And, you know, he calls people to account. And you need journalists who can call people out, who can pull out facts that actually discredit what they've said and can properly call them to account and that's a good a good journalist I, I'm amazed people weren't listening to him um, it was operationally a disaster and we all know that the production team the technical team are essential to any any uh, production whether it's newspapers or it's media whether it's website whatever it is and it was pretty pretty ropey on screen um, and he probably assumed that was always going to happen because you work at the BBC you work at Sky you work at other professional broadcasters they do all this stuff the trouble is you assume it just happens automatically and it doesn't it's actually a lot of work a lot of skill a lot of talent to make that happen um, the fact that 
the audience figures have now plummeted is because, you know, we've been given an excuse to switch off. It wasn't very good. You know, at times it was cringeworthy. Um, no Andrew Neil. Well, why bother? There's plenty of other options. And it's interesting to see that so many of the viewers have gone back to Sky News or to the BBC, which are both professional and good quality services. I think Sunday afternoons, they actually have zero viewers on Sunday afternoons. There is nobody watching at all. So look at the audience figures. It's about 21,000 uh, a day on average. Uh, and I think it peaks at about 80,000 for Farage's daily show. And he's taken over from, from Andrew Neil. Should they have perhaps gone um, this kind of more Farage-driven programming from the beginning? Wouldn't that be a, a, a bit more honest about their, their direction rather than perhaps pretending that they weren't a right-wing news channel? Well, certainly having Farage on every day does push it you know to its right wing agenda whether that was intended from the beginning or not and the fact he's pulling in roughly four times the average audience shows there is an audience for Nigel Farage whether that will sustain over time I don't know because I think Nigel Farage is a character who probably you know will not have an enduring uh, audience but at the moment he's pulling in those numbers but you're going to need several Nigel Farages to uh, build an audience that's going to make it commercially viable in terms of the right wing audience I I don't think it's Fox News, but, uh, you know, there and there will be an audience for it. I mean, you know, if you look at if you look at newspapers, you look at, you know, the Daily Mail audience, you look at the Guardian audience, people go to the newspaper that matches their particular beliefs. And so there will be people who like Farage and agree with Farage. Um, there's sort of honesty about Farage, I think. I, I think he's a, a genuine man. You know, whether or not I agree with him is neither here nor there. I wouldn't personally watch him, but uh, 80,000 people a day do. Lizzie, was Andrew Neil naive to think it wasn't going to be uh, a channel that is uh, right wing in focus, you know, surfs on being kind of anti-vax in there, you know, retreading Brexit, you know, anti-wokeness? I mean, the, the boss of, of GB News, um, Angelos Frangiopoulos, did this at Sky News in Australia. Like, wasn't it naive to expect that this wasn't going to happen in the UK? I don't know. Part of me hopes that he really thought it was going to be somewhere that was slightly more open, slightly more, yes, right-wing and anti-woke, but anti-woke in the sense that people could get to say what they wanted rather than feeling that they have to do down a certain agenda. And I do hope that he went into it thinking it was going to be just centre-right rather than the right-wing calamity that it is now become. Also, I just don't think there is... There is no appetite in the UK for a station that is completely left-wing or completely right-wing. I don't think it's, that's ever going to make the huge numbers, which was what he was expecting GB News to do. So he's not a silly man. He's not naive in that respect. I think he was expecting it to be centre-right, which for a lot of TV channels is right-wing compared to the you know, the impartialness that has to be seen on the BBC. Um, and now I think, to be honest, GB News is panicking and they know they can get names like Nigel Farage, which are going to get an amount in. They're just waiting for him to say something extremely controversial, give them more publicity, hopefully more viewers. But I think that's very different to what Andrew Neil expected it to be. Well, talking about big names, you know, while we were away, it was announced that News UK's news station, news TV station, is back on the cards um, and with another big name attached. Uh, Lizzie, how do you think they'll they'll get on with their their big siding? 
I think it's a very different kettle of fish because they have Piers Morgan, who is a born entertainer, basically. That's what he's always done throughout his career. And he knows how to stir the hornet's nest. He does everything that they want GB News to do. He makes a news agenda every day, you know. Today, for example, he's having a pop at Daniel Craig's jacket colour from the premiere last night and he's taken over Twitter once again he's trending so he's going to be doing that all the time because he knows how to make the news he knows he has that tabloid experience that says you know pig that's allergic to mud is going to make page one so let's put a pig on that's allergic to mud mightn't be true but hey it's going to get the people watching let's do it i think it's gonna be interesting to see what news uk do with their tv channel it was sort of on and then it was off uh, and rebecca brooks i think had gave an announcement internally saying that they weren't going to follow uh, GB News and do a broadcast TV channel. Clearly, that was before they were able to get Piers Morgan. Um, I think it's going to be interesting how they perhaps integrate talk radio and their video output, maybe even some Times radio material, someone like Piers and, and maybe some other uh, talent from uh, around the News UK building. Uh, we'll see what they come up with and we'll talk about it here. Um, okay, now just before we head to the media quiz, let's have a brief look ahead to the radars. Now, the radio industry listening figures haven't been reported since the start of the pandemic. It's over 18 months ago. Um, the diaries have been sent uh, out and sent back out to, to people over the last three months, and we're expecting the results at the end of October. Uh, Paul, we'll of course be covering them in full here, whether our listeners like it or not. Uh, but can you explain why this particular set of results is going to be interesting? Well, you're probably more of an expert on this, Matt, than I am. So I'm going to just give a few comments and you might want to add this because you really do a fantastic <laughs> blog on Rachel, which I always read every time you do it. Um, look, I mean, the first thing is this is going to be fascinating because we don't really know what's happened to radio listening over COVID-19 during the pandemic. But I think we all expect it to have increased. Now, what I would expect to see is some increase in reach, a very small increase in reach. Um, the last set of figures was Q1 2020 and the reach there was um, 48.9 million 88.8 percent so um, maybe we might see a one or two percent uptick in reach but what I do expect to see is many more hours per listener this is the number of hours per listener going up from maybe 20.2 to maybe 22 23 I could see a you know maybe a substantial hike in in total hours um, and then I think the other thing that's going to be interesting is seeing how times have changed because, you know, clearly um, listening in cars is going to change dramatically because people aren't going to work in their cars. So in-car listening will have dropped dramatically. People are at home. Um, at home, it's easier to listen than it would be in the office for many people. So I expect the daytime hours to go up. I expect peaks to be later. You know, if you look at the, the classic breakfast peak in the morning, Monday to Friday, I expect that's going to be probably later. Uh, people might be doing work in their pyjamas or they might be getting up later. We don't know, but I expect it'll be later. Um, I think the other thing we're going to see is a massive increase in listening online. Uh, certainly, if you look at some of the data that's been um, coming through from stations um, uh, outside Rajar, um, they're all showing very, very significant increases in online listening. So I think we'll see the overall digital number increase, um, but the online listening will be dramatically up. So there's a few sort of general thoughts, which you may or may not disagree with, Matt, because you are really the expert. Well, there's lots of predictions there, Paul. So we can um, we can see how well well you've you've done uh, later next month. Um, I think changing behaviour, I think. Uh, fascinating and, and how the coronavirus times and how we've all changed how we consume media and uh, what our day is um, 
is, is going, to, going to affect uh, the, those numbers. Uh, but also there's some new stations on the board as well that haven't reported figures. Uh, one of those is Times Radio. Um, Lizzie, go on, do what the rest of the industry are doing. Do you think Times Radio has got any listeners? How, how do you think that they'll do in their first radio? It's got one, certainly for Matt Chorley, <laughs> because I love Matt Chorley and he is my listener of choice. He's got me away from Ken Bruce. He used to be my easy listener while I worked and now I listen to Matt Chorley and he's read out some of my tweets. Thank you, Matt. I'm actually really enjoying Times Radio. I think they've done a good job. In the office, I would sometimes listen to, as I said, Radio 2, just some gentle, soft listening. But now I'm at home, I can concentrate more. So there is that more talk radio that appeals to me, which is where Times Radio comes in. And then I switch over to Sheila Felgerson, <laughs> I have to say. Sorry, Mariella. So, yeah, I think there's going to be a huge increase in people trying out different stations and also listening to, you know, you listen to podcasts as well, rather than just the radio. It's, it's a Lockdown has really turned around things like that about what you listen to and when you listen to it. Paul, uh, give me a reach prediction for, for Times Radio for their first book. Well, I did this actually um, about two years ago when Jake Cantor was on this very <laughs> podcast because we had this debate about it. And I was actually saying that I thought that Times Radio's initial reach was going to be quite modest. And where we settled was on this figure of 400,000, where I said mm. it's going to be way below 400,000. And Jake thought it'd be more than that. So I said, I'm pretty confident it's going to be way beyond four, below 400,000. Now, obviously, that would have been their first book and they've been on air now much longer um, and therefore I had more time to build the audience. But I'm going to stick to that forecast and say if they get a reach of 400,000, they've done very, very well. I think they'd be, they'd be pleased with that. Like everything, everyone wants more, but I think that'd be a good start. Yeah. All of which brings us to the media quiz. And before I begin, let's ask Ollie Mann for his advice about how all this works. Don't rehearse the quiz. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, newsflash everybody, I don't write the quiz. <laughs> It's an absolutely insane idea. <laughs> and it only... The, the confusion... The humour comes from the confusion of everybody involved. It's number wang, right? So I think it's really important that the host also has absolutely no idea what's going on. So I've, I've, it's been my particular joy of doing it, actually, is getting to the bit in the script, Ron Burgundy style, where suddenly I'm expected to do a German accent and somehow get through it without being cancelled. Do that. It's fun. Well, I'm always happy uh, with any work where I have to do less prep. <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind, here is the media quiz. This week, it's entitled Axed, Back or Vaxed? Jeez. Uh, so rubbishing in my media satchel, I found a number of stories from the past week uh, which involve brands or talent being axed or returning to our screens after a hiatus or a story about vaccinations. So you tell me if they're axed, back or vaxxed. I've got four for you. Uh, so shout your name if you know the answer. So Paul will say... Plumber. No, I'll say Paul. And Lizzie will say... Lizzie. Right. Let's play axed, back or vaxxed. Number one. Waterloo Road. Paul, back. It is back. The show replaces Holby City as the BBC's continuing drama. Uh, so, Paul, this is going to be a, a co-production between Wall to Wall and Cameron Roach's new Manchester indie Rope Ladder. That's a pretty good win for the indie sector and a nice new big show for them. 
It is, you know, and this is a, a great win for them because obviously uh, multiple episodes means much better profit and, and you can really build a franchise. I think what's going to be interesting is how the BBC tackle this and just how racy they go. If you think about all the fantastic uh, shows based around sort of high schools that are now on Netflix and the other streamers, you know, I mean, I've mention you know sex education because season three's just dropped and that's just brilliant and i mean i'm not sure whether the bbc would go that racy i think they've got to make sure that it's not a sort of a reincarnation of um uh, of uh, you know what they might have done five six years ago it's got to have a contemporary feel to it 13 reasons why another one that dealt with you know all sorts of difficult issues so i think it needs to be edgy it needs to be well written uh, but uh, clearly the bbc have seen the market gap and good luck to them Yes, it's got to be better than a kind of grown-up grain chill. Uh, so that's 1-0 to Paul. Right, number two. BBC Three TV. Lizzie Buck. Correct. The youth brand's been given the go-ahead by Ofcom uh, to return to our EPGs. Um, how do you think you know, them returning to the, the telly box is going to affect other, other networks like, like E4 and, and, and ITV2? I think BBC Three's done a really good job of building up a following, so it'll hit them quite a bit. I mean, I, you know, when I'm going through iPlayer and I click on a documentary without actually realising it's BBC Three Youth, then I'm quite happy to watch it. So I would be looking into, you know, BBC Three back on TV. So I think the E4s and what have you, we're going to have to watch because they do have some really good programmes on there, even for an old codger like me. Okay, we're running out of time, so let's just do one more. Here's the decider. Axed, back or vaxed for three unnamed strictly professional dancers. Paul vaxed. Uh, It is vaxed. So this is uh, all but three of the strictly dancers have been vaccinated, which has led some of the dancers lawyering up in case that creates privacy issues for the BBC. That's quite a modern problem, isn't it? Uh, uh, Lizzie, have the BBC studios handled this vax issue well enough, do you think? Not really, because there's a lot of anger growing up amongst those who haven't been vaccinated and they might have very valid reasons why they don't want to do it. Um, I mean, I know some women who are very wary about getting their second vaccination. So, yeah, I think BBC screwed up a bit, actually. They could have handled it better than that. Uh, okay, so um, congratulations, Paul. Uh, two out of three uh, on, on the media quiz, which crowns you the winner. Congratulations. Well, thank you, Matt. Can I make a request? Now you're here as the brand new host. Can we improve the prizes? Because under your predecessor, <laughs> they were absolutely <laughs> rubbish. Uh, check your post and Amazon delivery will be uh, on its way shortly, uh, I'm sure, from the... Um, you're a lovely man. From the production team. Uh, and, you know, that's a, a, an excellent reminder um, that the, this show is independently produced. And if you'd like to uh, donate to it, the money doesn't go to Paul's prizes. Uh, it goes to the production team who make the programme. You can do that at themediapodcast.com slash donate. Uh, so that's our show for today. Right. Uh, my thanks to Paul Robinson and Elizabeth Carr-Ellis. Uh, my name is Matt Deegan. Uh, you can find my weekly newsletter about the audio industry and more at mattdeegan.com you can follow this podcast uh, and subscribe to it at podfollow.com slash the media podcast and you'll hear those new episodes as soon as they drop on your podcast app of choice Uh, the producers are Matt Hill and Pete Price it was a Rethink Audio and PPM production we'll see you in a fortnight Planning for your next trip? 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.